It has been said that as well as buying bread for the cupboard, one should also have flowers for the table. In other words, beauty matters. Today, we will talk with one of the nation's leading voices in the art world about the importance of discovering and creating beauty in the midst of troubling times. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Come on, let's paint with some colors. Start with yellow, red, and blue. Mix them together to get purple, green, and orange, too. We put the paint on the brush, and we swirl it all around. We swirl. I'm delighted to welcome to Watching America, Jerry Saltz. It's a name you should know if you're interested in American culture, world culture, or art. You see, Jerry Saltz is an American art critic. He's also the senior art critic for New York Magazine. And prior to that, he worked as a senior critic for The Village Voice. He's a recipient of a Pulitzer Prize, no less, for criticism in 2018. He holds honorary doctorates from the School of Art Institute of Chicago, the Kansas City Art Institute, among others. He's animated in style. His facial expressions can well remind one of Phil Silvers with his glasses and an infectious grin. All this to say that this is a wonderful package with an astute mind with insight to art as both business and private passion. Welcome, Dr. Saltz, to Watching America. Thank you, Alan. I love being here. I love that introduction. And you can call me Dr. 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 Salt, please. I like that. <laughs> well, Dr. 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 Saltz, and we'll continue with that vein, um, was born in please. Chicago. But as a young boy, you had a significant um, epiphany of a sort. You visited the Chicago Art Institute. Now, I have to tell you, Dr. 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 Saltz, that that is one, that. Of my, <laughs> it is one of my favorite um, institutions in the United States. Uh, you know, everyone goes to, to the Getty in Los Angeles and what have you, and certainly uh, there are phenomenal uh, art galleries galore around the world. But the, the Chicago Art Institute is exceptional in many ways. Now, I want to ask you, when you were a boy and you visited it, uh, beyond what most people do, they make a beeline for American Gothic, uh, depicting father and daughter Grant Wood's work, and they go to see Nighthawk's Edward Hopper. Is there one distinctive element on that first tour that you had of the Art Institute that stood out and made an impact on you? In fact, there really is. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, and there was no art in my life. All I did was play sports and run around, and I, I never thought about art. It never occurred to me. When I was around nine years old, for no reason, my wife, my wife. Let you me got start started again. early, didn't you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Freudian. Or you can keep this Freudian slip. <laughs> when I was about nine years old, my mother inexplicably drove me into Chicago, put me in the car, drove me in, and seemed to park me at the Art Institute. I have no memory of her around me at all. And I didn't know really what I was looking at or where I was, and I walked around looking at stuff on the wall. And then finally, at some point, I remember looking at two small paintings hanging side by side, and they're very colorful. And on the left was a guy that looked like a saint or something in colorful robes inside a prison cell with two people outside that looked sad talking to him. Mm. On the right 
he was there again, but he was bending over, sticking his head out the prison cell, but his head was on the ground and there was blood spurting everywhere. And the two sad men had run away and there was a huge uh, sort of executioner there with a big sword. And uh, the head was being placed on a silver platter. And I looked left and right and back and forth. And after a while, it suddenly hit me. This painting was telling a story. Mm. These pictures were speaking. They weren't silent. And I remember looking around at the rest of everything around me, and I was on fire. I just thought, this should never end. I want to decipher and unpack and probe every single thing I see. So when did you, point of fact, put down the baseball mitt and, if you will, pick up the easel? Right. Well, that epiphany disappeared. Then I forgot it. I'm going to say something that's going to sound sort of heavy to your listeners, and it is. And so this is a bit of a trigger warning. Um, when I was 10, one day I came home from Jewish Sunday school, and my father sat uh, me and my two brothers down, and he said, your mother has gone to see the angels. And I said, when is she coming back? And he said, she isn't coming back. And she was never spoken of again for the rest of my life. There was no funeral, no, you know, memorial service, no mourning, no nothing. She had committed suicide, uh, I guess, that day. Uh, but I was never told that either. And this is when I seemed to grow, this is going to sound crazy, something like invisible antenna, that I knew I was being treated very different by the rest of the world in my suburb. But I had no idea why. It was as if people were nervous around me, afraid or too nice, something was different, and I grew these invisible t antenna, and I learned how to make them talk. The problem is I never thought about art again. I never thought about her or anything again until many, many years later. And I looked around, and I saw that the people in my high school that were having sex were either in the theater world or the art world, so I picked art. And that's how I got involved, frankly. Wow. Okay. Um, I would imagine that there is, you know, even even greater resonance and, and significance now to the Chicago Art Institute because your yes. mother, as you say, parked you there, uh, yes. and uh, really was was charting the course of your life. Little did you realize it. You know, obviously, yeah. with some space in between of of inactivity. That's really perceptive. I never. Honestly, I never thought of that, that in many ways she was sort of nudging me in that direction. And I never, it never occurred to me till you just said it. So thank you for that, Doctor. You're very, very welcome, Doctor, Doctor, Doctor. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very curious then about, you know, obviously, the, you know, uh, Elvis Presley uh, had an effect on a lot of, of would-be musicians. Uh, John Lennon right. said we became the Beatles because we wanted to be Elvis Presley, which meant access to women and sex and what have you. And, right. uh, in, you know, in the realm of, of, of the arts, the, there's a, a prolific um, a, a continuous of sexual expression that goes on. So even though that that was your initial, initial, attraction by the sirens right. calling you, right. it became serious. What happened when yeah. it became serious? I wrote this book, um, How to Be an Artist, because I myself am a failed artist. I began making work. I loved it. 
It was one of the most physically resonant things I'd ever done. I would just sort of journey inside of myself and make stupid things and then talk to my stupid friends about my own stupid ideas. And I was in heaven. And my friends and I were developing a whole new language, or, you know, so we thought. And I was making art, and I was happy. And then... As with all people who make things, demons spoke to me. You don't really know what you're doing. I never went to school, by the way, and I have no degrees. That's why I'm a bit obnoxious about that doctor, doctor, doctor thing. (laughs) I, I need more degrees, by the way. Anybody listening, I give free commencement speeches all I need is the damn doctor. <laughs> Jerry, I have to tell you, doctor, 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 that you've, you've endeared yourself yet again to me um, because even though I'm a possessor of multiple degrees, I don't put a lot of stock in them. And I'm completely serious. People oh. fail to differentiate between wisdom, education, and intelligence. All three categories are distinct. Somebody could be well-educated, but they're not necessarily that intelligent and certainly very often lacking wisdom. Um, That's spoken like a true doctor, no offense, but go on. <laughs> God, I never thought that. Okay, I, I, I don't want to don the, the chevrons right now. I've got okay. to disrobe here for you. Okay. Um, but uh, I would disagree, and, and I say this most ardently, respectfully, that your life is an art. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it is. I mean, just your yeah. basic demeanor to reach and ignite within persons the ability to understand, to appreciate art. I I have to take this moment and just uh, read something, which is a direct quote from Steve Martin regarding you. He writes about the book How to Be an Artist by Jerry Saltz. He says the following, Inspiration leaps off the pages with Jerry Saltz's new book on creativity. This book is for the artists or non-artists, for the person who gets plain English, for the person who understands the practical talk and can coax out the mystical messages that lie underneath, unquote, from Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? You, you benefited, I think, in many ways from not having a traditional academic career. You are a, uh, a naturalistic voice about the realm of art, and you are not struck and stricken with unnecessary pontification, which mm-hmm. um, confuses. You're direct and accessible, and that in of itself is is cherishable. So well, let me ask you about your book, How to Be an Artist. Uh-huh. How do you ignite the appreciation for the arts and the artistry within the individual within your book, How to Be an Artist? I believe art has been with us, Alan, since the beginning. It has never not been here. Darwin did not say it's the survival of the strongest or fittest. That's a tragic misreading of something he wrote. He said survival is based on those who can adapt most readily. Mm. And boom, that's exactly what the operating system known as art does. It's hungry for change. It will explore in every direction at once. Creativity is in our DNA. Creativity is a survival mechanism used by our species for the last 50,000 years. Creativity is in every bone in every person's body. Else, honestly, you would not be here. Mm. I wrote this book as a letter to my former self based on all the decades of looking at art that I've now ever done and the advice and experience I've had around hundreds of other artists, many of them successful, most of them not, and the advice that they offer. This in a way is like a map, a possible map for people who We all feel it, want to spread their wings, maybe, and fly. This is not about making you a rich or famous artist. Don't come to this book for that. I promise you I'm of no help. If you know a way to make a lot of money, please write that book, and I will buy it. Um, This is a way to just stop people from being embarrassed. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You're going to be embarrassed when you start to make things. Yes. That is a given. You've got to give yourself that kind of permission. That you cannot think about, I got to make it good. You forget about making it good or bad. That's completely uninteresting and really not the point of art. The point is that work comes from work. You have to be able to, and this book helps you, start to speak back to those demons that say, you didn't get the right education. You've got a bad neck. You're a fake. You don't have enough money. You don't really know how to schmooze. What the hell? You can't even draw. Well, every person that ever lived before you had this, these voices and similar conditions. And this book, I promise you, even if you make bad work like I do, and mind you, I love my bad work. I love it. Even when I hate it, I love it. I promise you this book will allow you to begin to spread your wings and get lost in the most beautiful way ever in your own process. And you can start to make your own mark. That's all I want for you. And I promise you, if you do that, you know, meet me tonight in Creative City, babe. It's pretty (laughs) amazing, the feeling, even though it's hellish. Now, let's deal with the issue of snobbery. Um, One of the things I find so endearing about you, Jerry, uh, is you're not a snob. Uh, You're extremely insightful, competent, kind, uh, humorous, charming, and not a snob. (laughs) How do you battle that element, which is so absolutely expansive in the art world? Well, if you, listener, if you think you are a late bloomer, I did not write my first word until I was about 40 years old. I self-exiled from the art world when I just gave in to those voices that said, oh, come on, you can't do this. And I stopped working, and I became a long-distance truck driver. I think the only Jewish one. But every month I drove from New York to either Texas, Florida, sometimes California, and I only grew more miserable. It sounds romantic, but it wasn't, other than maybe the first trip. But every minute of every day was horrible. The, the aloneness, the bitterness, the envy, the hatred of everything around me really only grew. Finally, I thought, I've got to do something. And I thought, huh, art critics... Mm, that must be easy. Now, <laughs> boy, was I dumb. I, I again, had never read, uh, written anything in my life. Now, anybody listening to this right now, you know what I'm going to say next. Writing is like one of the worst arts in the world. You can't really listen to music. I can only listen to things like Enya. When I write, it's it's a nightmare. And, so I presume that's you know, not music. You can't talk shop because you don't have shop talk. Yeah. Today I sat down and I typed. That's your shop talk. You know, that's it. And frankly, I'm alone pretty much 18 hours a day. I got what I wanted. It's a nightmare and I love it. I tried to write the snobby, smart way. I trained myself in those trucks to read a a glossy art magazine called Art Forum. Mm -hmm. It's um, kind of the bride's magazine of the art world. Everybody gets it and looks at it, and the ads make you crazy. Like, how did that person get a show? Oh, my God, this (laughs) one's a billionaire. I hate everybody. So I read these articles, and this is what they still, my God, Most of them, they still sound like this, something like the late post-Marxist capitalist object finds itself in the simulacra (laughs) of the, you know, internecine examination of the interrogation of the duality of a dialectic. And I thought, what the hell are they writing about? And I felt really intimidated and alone. And I learned to write that way. 
And well, be encouraged because, as we all know, Herman Melville didn't start writing until he was 40, and so you're in good company there. Um, <laughs> but what, what you've done is, is a great service. I always believe as a teacher and as a professor that any fool can make something relatively simple sound complicated. But the true task of being a loving, and I use that word generally, loving teacher and professor is to make something complicated relatively simple and accessible. And that's, that's beautiful. What, that's what you do. That's what you do yeah. with your work. How did you overcome um, encountering, not just avoiding being a snob yourself, but overcome the snobbery that you encountered when you initially wanted to start to write, where people right. would be dismissive? A, a couple of things. Like I say, when I first started writing, and I don't know where that writing is anymore, it's pre-internet. I am today 69 years old. I didn't start writing. I don't remember how old I was until, like I say, about 40, So, but it's pre-internet. And I don't know what happened to those idiotic reviews, but people seem to like them. I never knew what I was saying, but I thought, oh, good, they think I'm smart. Then... The worst thing about almost any kind of creating saved my life. Deadlines. Deadlines mm. are sent to us from hell via heaven. I was, uh, of course, putting off the work, of course, getting closer to the deadline. And then one day I was about 12 hours from the deadline and I thought, I don't have a choice. I can't pretend to write that other way. I'm going to actually have to write what I really, really think. Mm. And I'm going to have to write what I don't like about the work, too. Yes. It just hit me. It, by necessity, I had no time to dissemble anymore. I was finally helpless. I was helpless to do any other thing but to write in my own voice. And I wrote a review, and I don't remember, I have never seen it again, but I knew instantaneously that something had happened. I knew that I was finally making my work out of myself, that that is the material. This is the spirit. That is the love or insecurity or passion or whatever it is that you have. That is what I was pouring into the material of my work. And my life started to change slowly. <laughs> Professionally, it took a long time. But, you know, I was happy in my unhappiness and pain. And I still am. I love it. I think 70% of every day, honestly, Alan, I walk around going, I cannot believe how lucky I am. I would, again, respectfully disagree. I, I don't think you've only just been lucky, and luck is a factor opportunity, to be sure. Yes, But yes. I, I think you have received merited favor uh, because of your talent and your ability. Uh, again, one of the things which is, is so enchanting is, if you will, your blue-collar experience in the world, uh, riding and driving across America uh, in a truck, in a cab, uh, and pulling goods from one location to another. When you would go to truck stops, I'm curious about this because I've always had a fascination for truckers and uh, for the trucking world, uh, both men and women doing it today. When you would go to truck stops, was was that a, a heightened sense of loneliness, or would you find the common Joe with his you know trucker cap on and sit across and you know have beef strudel or something with him on the menu? How did you actually live? I'm so tempted to lie, but I have to be honest. They must have had me marked. Looking back, they must have had me marked the second I walked in that door. I would try to strike up a conversation. Eh, they never went anywhere. You know, on the CB radio. Break a bar, one one. Yes. I called myself the Jewish cowboy. I would try to come on and talk about art. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was completely out of touch. And here's the worst part. So did you, did you, I just got to ask you this. Excuse me. Did you get on, on, on the radio and say, you know, I'd like to talk about Picasso's blue period? <laughs> yes. Yes. I would say anybody out there thinking about Richard Serra's work after Tilted Ark, isn't it amazing that he's been reborn? 
You know, <laughs> this is absolutely true. You've got I'm to write not proud. You've got to write and... a novel. You've got either you got uh, <laughs> Jerry. You've either got to do a novel or or a biography. Autobiography. This is incredible. Let me just remind the audience who I'm speaking with. I'm speaking to the doctor, 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 great Jerry Saltz, who's become an instant friend of mine. His book is called How to Be an Artist, and um, I should tell you some of his credentials. This is not struck up to luck, but actually uh, because of his great talent, he is a senior art critic for New York Magazine. And prior to that, he had worked as a senior art critic for The Village Voice. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner for Criticism, Art Criticism in 2018. He holds multiple honorary doctorate degrees, and he's an absolutely enchanting gentleman to talk to. So we've just been discussing uh, his experience going across the country on CB radio as a truck driver, talking about art forms and art movements. Okay, continue, please, Jerry. Well, long story short, I started writing like my real self. And this is all I want people to do. Work comes from work, Alan. Not working is the easiest thing in the world to do. Working is hard, but I promise you, working is more fun than not working. Not working is a curse. Yes. Not working is a foulness. We all know it. There was more. I had to do more. Much, much more. I would tell people one of the first things you have to do after you begin working, you big babies, you have to find a way to pick up a pencil, start marking something, use your idiot iPhone. The entire history of the known universe is stored in it, in your pocket. It's able to do a lot of things. You can just make it talk. But one of the things you have to do once you begin to work, the next thing you have to do is make an enemy of envy. Envy is the thing that makes you look around and see what other people have. It's always in the service of someone or something else. Well, this person has a better radio show. Mm -hmm. I'm not Terry Gross. Mm -hmm. Or I might think, God, that person is like writing all these catalogs, and I'm Mr. Credential up the wing-wong, and I'm never asked. I'm never invited to go to Venice or Milan or any of those fun hotel hangouts and Mm -hmm. review each other's shows. I don't have enough money. All of those voices, frankly, they're eating you alive inside. They're not producing your work. In fact, I want to be honest with the listener. It's killing your work. You will slowly, if not quickly, finally become bitter, uh, a cynic, and frankly, boring. Mm -hmm. You will always think you know why so-and-so got an exhibition, why she got the good review, why he got to write the catalog essay. The truth is... None of us really knows anything about one another's private, secret lives. It's a miracle all of us have made it. And I'm really aware of that, not only because of my own story, but because I know that everyone has a story. And it's this story that if you begin to embed in your work, even in the most abstract way, it might be your Henry Matisse painting beautiful women or beautiful, you know, rooms in the south of France. We begin to get in touch with and probe and plumb the the human spirit and this incredible thing called art and the complexities of unpacking beauty. You might look at a Goya who painted a painting of uh, Saturn devouring his children. And suddenly you understand this, too, is a form of beauty, that there is a terrible beauty, many called Beethoven, you know, when they first heard his third symphony, and they knew the world was changing. Art is always remaking the world. Art does not change the world, especially in this time of art and life during a time of the coronavirus. 
in honor of the suffering and those who will suffer. We must not say, oh, art changes the world. But we can say that art changes lives, and lives change the world. Art is for anyone. It's just not for everyone. And I think if we're a little bit honest and a little bit direct with one another and speak in our own personal vernacular and respect the other art that came before you, you don't have to make it and imitate it, but don't just dismiss it and go, everybody else but me was not that good. Just accept that consensus and get on with it. May I add another thing I wish for all of your listeners? Absolutely, please. And now we've come to a time where we're all sheltering in place. Nature has forced this. Viruses come, but viruses also go. And art is long. But life is not. Being forced to be secluded, alone curiously favors art's strongest tools. It is an intimate practice by nature. It's true that in certain centuries, certainly uh, two months ago, you would see billion-dollar artists with studios of 50 people. That's gone now, and it might be gone for the foreseeable future. Right now, people are making art the way we always did in the caves, in little buildings without electricity. Picasso painted for much of his life without electricity, by oil lamp, alone at night on opium. Right now, we are working our kitchen tables, making art out of ourselves and whatever material is at hand. The kids might be next to you, you know, drawing. They have their own artistic practice. Or the macaroni... Particles with paste yeah. on the paper paper plate. Make the stuff. Make anything you want. You have a lot of time. Time is the definition of success. Even if the kids are making a mess, 99% of all art in the history of the world was made by that. And only 1.1.1.1.1% of 1% of all artists became you know, rich and successful. I am not talking about that. I'm talking about giving you a life lived in art. And this can be done in your living room, in your dining room, in the middle of the day or night. These are the hard times, the dark nights. They are here. We are chosen forced to be living through this. There is no choice now. Jerry, um... I, Sorry, I, I'm a blabbermouth no, because no right. one ever asks critics what they think. No, no, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I, just, <laughs> I, I just love want, this. I want to ask... I love it too, Jerry. I'm so delighted <laughs> to have you, you with us. Um, what I want hysteric. to do is... I want to ask you a, a, a very specific uh, question related to beauty. Um, you reference beauty. I mean, art essentially is, is striving for it, or some people would say a, a truth, and there's two schools of thought that of regarding that. The Greeks, not to get too highfalutin here, but the Greeks uh-huh. used to use the word arete, and arete mean, meant the good, the beautiful. One of the common cries by various critics, and I would mention Sir Roger Scruton, the philosopher in relation to this, uh, in his work, Beauty Matters, and he argues that beauty is actually transcendental under all circumstances, one presumes, including what we're currently going through. Uh, there was a, a movement within art, many will say, that in the latter part of the 19th century moved away from the idea of art being beautiful, the good, the aspiring to something, and art just merely being indulgent. Where do you come in relation to this this argument or presentation of of view that says that art is no longer aspiring to the to the human spirit, but is just in some cases just wallowing in the mire? A couple of things. Good question. Okay. A couple of things. The late twenty late nineteenth century marks artists like Manet, Van Gogh, Monet, Seurat. Cezanne, what they were doing is what artists in the high renaissance were doing. They were redefining beauty. 
If beauty is not continually redefined, there's no reason we shouldn't be making art, say, that looks like Egyptian hieroglyphics. Indeed, they loved their style so much they kept it 5,000 years. It worked for them. For me, beauty is as beauty does, you see, that it might be a beautiful baseball swing. It might be ugly to look at, but it has a use. Each one of us has to weigh in and examine what we think is beauty. I would always just tell any person looking at any object to just ask themselves a simple question. What would I like about this? If I were the kind of person who liked it, give that, you know, three minutes, wow. three lousy minutes, you big baby. Yeah. And I promise you, you will start to at least see its qualities. You know, it's shiny. Well, let's go back it's to very Kincaid. orange, whatever, even Damien Hirst, whoever. Jerry, let's go back to the. I, I was astonished that you made reference to Kincaid. Uh, you know, he's very big, was very big, the late uh, Kincaid now, as as the painter of light. Um, right. I've seen his works. It's extremely commercial, uh, very idealized um, uh, imagery from from uh, American Midwest sometimes, England, uh, always reflective surfaces, light emanating from everywhere, almost supernaturally, which is interesting because he has a, a very high Christian market, people that uh, buy his uh, imagery from mugs to yes. reproductions in the house. It, I don't get it. Uh, I, I I will look at the stuff and I'll say, okay, yeah, this is meaningful to people, and it is uh, uh, romanticism to the nth degree. It is, it is idealized source of of a world that does not exist. I don't get it personally, but now you're you're asking me to say, okay, look at this work, and I'm very excited, Jerry, talking to you about this, and, and this is very important. Me too. Okay, so you're you're suggesting I look at this work and say, now what do people that like it see in it? Now, without, condes me, without, condescension, thinking, without condescension. I'm already thinking at least two things. You go first, Alan, and then I get... We call this blood sport in my brain. <laughs> that, like, we test each other. And, of course, I want to win because I'm an a-hole. But you tell me two qualities, if you like Thomas Kincaid, what you would like about him. The reassurance of happy. Um, there's, Boom. Yeah. That's one. Okay. i got to come up with a second one. This is rough. Um, a hearkening to a period of time which is either realistically or erroneously believed to be safer. You have a beautiful mind. I mean this. Thank Here's you. Here's what I would have said. And yours is better than mine. I'm not sure I'm going to win this. I would say... You mentioned, say, a large Christian following. I would have said he his work is loved by those who worship certainty and that are afraid of doubt. Wow. Yes. Art is filled with doubt. And for me, doubt is faith. It makes you have to reassert it. Every time you look up in the sky and go, there's no God, and then you have to work this damn problem out, the same way you have to do with a lousy, you know, Monet painting. But if you like certainty in your politics, in your life, in, it's the perfect art. And as you say, it's, you also will have a kind of Burgermeister appreciation of a very, very, very traditional idea of skill which is this kind of uh, Western realism uh, practiced, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century of illustration, etc. where I would say what I appreciate is every artist must redefine skill. So if you can draw my face, that's kind of a miracle to me. You got skill. Now I would say you've got half the problem licked. Now draw it the way only you can draw it. It's not that hard. It only takes a lifetime, but that's what you've got. Let me just ask you this question about skill. One of the things I do to my students is I say, I want you to imagine yourself at a fairground, state fairground, and you go up where there's a kiosk and you have 
what's called spin art. You have, you're given a piece of cardboard, three inches by five inches. It goes into a well, which goes onto a spindle. And then you have what looks like condiment containers with different colors, cyan, blue, red, and orange. And you put your foot on an accelerator and it spins and, and, and uh, oscillates at a high rate of speed. And you p drop the paint onto the surface. Well, obviously it's going to produce what looks like a Nova effect, uh, colors going in all directions. And then I say, now you take it out and you hold it up and ask yourself, is that art? How many of you think it's art? Well, invariably, the students will raise their hand and some will say, yes, it's definitely art. Almost all of them will. And I say, what makes it art? And we get back to the, you know, art in the eye of the beholder. But then I ask this important question. I say, is it skill? Then I get silence. Okay, so there's, there, is, there is this intriguing dynamic and, and another facet of why I find you so intriguing. There's this intriguing facet between skill versus randomism versus intent versus discovery. And I think that you're, we're playing, we're swimming around in this realm of thought, you and I. I just want to know where you stand. Uh, not that you have to stand, but I'm just, no. you know, figuratively, where you, where you, if to use the common vernacular, where you come down on this Where matter. do I come down on, say, the, the general category of, say, spin art and all art like that, for example? Right. My wife is Roberta Smith. She is the co-chief art critic for The New York Times. I love my work, but she is the real critic. If you want to know who to go up against, in, I think she's the best art critic alive, perhaps among the greatest who's ever lived, but I'm biased. One of the many things I've learned from Roberta, who basically redeemed me in, uh, when we first met in whenever we were both in our 30s and failed you know, relationshipers, mm -hmm. um, is that pleasure is a very important form of knowledge. And we forget this in the West. I guess what I would simply say about the spin art is it gives pleasure. It is fun, a bit like when you write the first letter of your first name and you go, God, I write the best A that anybody <laughs> writes. I mean, look at my letter. Is this a good letter? Or the best J. Well, <laughs> my J would kill you. It's insane <laughs> how good it is. You know, it's obnoxious. The bottom line is this. You make something that gives you pleasure, good. I guess I would say, look at Van Gogh. He had almost no natural talent. What did Van Gogh have? He had the desire. He really, really, really wanted it. There's a myth about him as being this ignored, unfamous, unknown artist. This is completely false and romantic and silly, and it obscures it. Van Gogh is one of the most famous artists alive in his own lifetime. Every famous artist in Paris, Monet, Manet, Cezanne, Gauguin, they all knew every move that Van Gogh made. They knew when he moved down south in France to keep pursuing uh, paint. They knew all this. He was famous. His brother worked at the most famous mega gallery on earth where he showed Vincent's work, it didn't sell. Van Gogh also got the equivalent of an all-out rave review in what was the equivalent of the New York Times, and he sold one painting as a result. Mind you, Gauguin had only sold two, and one of them is likely have, to have been a trade. His situation wasn't that much different other than he was a bit squirrely and intense and being around him must have been taxing. What was Van Gogh doing? He wanted, close your eyes and see a Van Gogh, everybody in the audience, please. I'm doing it what, too, audience Okay, members. what subject matter would you like to choose, Alan? Regarding what? Uh, uh, Van Gogh. Well, what, what, do you, what, what is the picture of? Well, probably Van Gogh's uh, apartment. I see the chair. I see the okay. bedpost. I also see okay. innumerable, well, not innumerable, but many, many images of his self-portraiture. Beautiful. 
I'm seeing it too. So are all your listeners. Very good description. Now what I would ask all people to do is, now you've identified the subject matter. Now I want you to see through the subject matter. Okay, let's begin. What does your eye see? Do not talk about subject matter or emotion. What does your eye literally see right now? And if you can't answer, I can help you out. I see thick paint. Boom. You've just seen something that barely exists in the history of Western art in 500 years. They covered their tracks for 500 years. Those were the rules in Renaissance paintings, which I adore. Suddenly, it happens earlier in the 19th century, but Van Gogh just says, whap, flap, daub, it's there. So you've now seen texture. What else do you see, doctor? Color and arrangement. Ah, genius. You're now seeing not just the texture, but you're seeing color. And uh, now you may define the color without getting too, you know, flowery about it. Just uh, tell me what kind of color. I see greens, yellows, ambers, oranges. Are they uh, loud, uh, sh- uh, dim, uh, muted, somber, uh, they, they, exuberant? They, they are exuberant, but they are tempered by um, uh, some earth tones. Okay, brilliant. Now you've seen surface, and I'm going to throw in a few now. Material, that is the paint. You're not supposed to be looking at the paint for the last 500 years or so. You're looking at just the classic interior. No big deal on the subject matter. But you're now seeing, instead of subject matter, here is what you are seeing. And this is happening all at once. One, you're seeing material, surface, color, and the composition, this gets really interesting and a little more advanced. If you closed your eyes and pointed at any part of the painting... I'm still doing it. Good. No part of that painting is any more or any less important than any other kind. Do you see what he did? He shattered Western perspective. Mm. And he's making you look at and say, this is a picture of a bedroom, but it's also a new, it's a non-space, a new space. I want you to see process, color, mark making, material. I don't want there to be any hierarchy in the composition. Now, I don't know if art historians write this way. I don't know, most critics won't. This doesn't make them wrong or bad. I just know that each of us comes to a picture, any picture of Thomas Kincaid, and we are alone with a kind of silent otherness, just like I got stuck with when I was nine years old at the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And maybe, just maybe, the lack of faith, the fear than wanting to understand, which is the worst thing you can do with art. You never ask, what does a Mozart mean? But when you put all of that aside, you start to come to terms with the thing itself in front of you, and you will start dancing in your mind like, ooh la la, even a guy like me who put off no carnal vibe, a guy like me who couldn't get his act together, a loser and late bloomer as big as me, and I love me totally, mm-hmm. could get to work and write my personal letter to the world. This is all I ask people to do. And your letter to the world during coronavirus Even if you are just painting flowers or stripes or the interior, I want to promise every listener right now, whether you know it or not, the content, that means the deep content of this moment is embedded in your work. And it will be when this passes. And you will have left a beautiful record for your family to see and yourself. And you will remember this. You will remember, oh, yeah, I was alone. Embedded in this material and this surface is that fear I had. You know the game that people play, you know, if you could invite 
10 people to dinner or six people to dinner, who would you invite? And I, I revise the list uh, every few years. But always on my list is uh, two personalities, Orson Welles and Camille Pallier, who we've had on the show, uh, Camille Pallier. And now I'm adding Jerry Saltz to it. Um, oh, don't put me on. I would just eat pizza. Would that be great? And I'm a, a t- don't ask me. I no, would be no, you, you, don't, you, 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 you can't self <laughs> self uh, declare that you're not on the list. You're, it's my list. I'm on the list. It's my list. And Ronnie. I'm honored. And I, I would. Uh, yeah. I, I want to ask you though, I, and, and before we get ready to leave, and I don't want to leave. I'm enjoying this so much. In fact, you know, the me measure too. of a good program is I forget I'm doing a radio program, and that has happened well, a, a number of times during this this conversation. You're making me feel really good, and in three minutes. When we stop speaking, like you, I have to then go back to my deadline that's waiting upstairs calling me. The deadline in the refrigerator. (laughs) That's all I hear all day long. One question. I'm curious. You are by nature self-deprecating and deferential to others. Why do you suppose that is? My self-deprecation, frankly, I'd like to think, isn't self-hate. It's a form of honesty of saying, I know there's certain things I do that might not be the best or the, you know, are annoying or this or that. Uh, I try to change some of them. And every day I try to fix my work. And I listen to people when they give me criticism. And I always think there's a grain of truth to that. And then I think there's nothing you could say to me worse about my work than I haven't said a hundred times already. And I feel kind of brave. There's courage in every work of art you make. Every work of art you've ever seen is made up of courage to have done it. Every work. And I really want the listeners to know this. And I believe in your courage. All you have to do is get to work. Jerry, you are if you'll excuse the expression, an evangelist for art and a voice for the intimidated. Uh, You are a person who truly wants people to grow and to be at peace with whatever they create, which is a gift. So what you're doing is, if I may use this in the broad sense, a type of ministry. It's certainly heartening for a time that we're living through right now, which is uh, is filled with many uh, unknowns. Jerry Saltz is the author of the book, How to Be an Artist. I cannot recommend it high enough. Uh, And I have to tell you that he is an earnest gentleman, a charming gentleman. All I know is that I'm extremely grateful for having had the privilege of having him on Watching America. Bless you. I want to say it one last time. Doctor, doctor, doctor Saltz. Love to you, man. Thank you so very, very much for um, blessing us. The same to you. It's a huge honor to be on your show. Thank you, and really stay safe. You too. Take care and God bless. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is Chief of Content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Art, art, I want you. Art, you make it pretty hard not to. And my heart is trying hard here to follow you, but I can't always tell if I Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.